Chapter 16 of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Poets. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Edgar Allan Poe. One does not feel by any means that the last word has been uttered upon this great artist. Has attention been called, for instance, to the sardonic cynicism which underlies his most thrilling effects? Poe's cynicism is itself a very fascinating pathological subject. It is an elaborate thing, compounded of many strange elements. There is a certain dark, willful melancholy in it that turns with loathing from all human comfort. There is also contempt in it and savage derision. There is also in it a quality of a mood that I prefer to call Saturnian, the mood of those born under the planet Saturn. There is cruelty in it too, and voluptuous cruelty, though cold, reserved and evasive. It is this cynicism of his which makes it possible for him to introduce into his poetry, it is of his poetry that I wish to speak, a certain colloquial salt, pungent and acrid, and with the smell of the tomb about it, it is colloquialism, but it is such colloquialism as ghosts or vampires would use. Poe remains, that has already been said, has it not, absolutely cold while he produces his effects. There is a frozen contempt indicated in every line he writes for the poor, facile artists who speak with tears. Yet the moods through which his Annabelles and Legiers and Ullalooms lead us are moods he must surely himself have known. Yes, he knew them. But they were, so to speak, so completely the atmosphere he lived in that there was no need for him to be carried out of himself when he wrote of them. No need for anything but icy, pitiless transcription. Has it been noticed how inhumanly immoral this great poet is? Not because he drank wine or took drugs. All that has been exaggerated in any way. What does it matter now? But in a much deeper and more deadly sense. It is strange. The world makes such odd blunders. It seems possessed of the idea that absurd amorous scamps like Casanova reach the bottom of wickedness. They do not even approach it. Intrinsically, they are quite stupidly good. Then again, Byron is supposed to have been a wicked man. He himself aspired to be nothing less. But he was everything less. He was a great, greedy, selfish, swaggering, magnanimous infant. Oscar Wilde is generally regarded as something short of the just man made perfect. But his simple, babyish passion for touching pretty things, toying with pretty people, wearing pretty clothes and drinking absinthe, is far too naive a thing to be, at bottom, evil. No really wicked person could have written the importance of being earnest, with those delicious paradoxical children rallying one another, and Aunt Augusta calling aloud for cucumber sandwiches. Salome itself, that scarlet litany, which brings to us, as in a box of alabaster, all the perfumes and odours of amorous lust is not really a wicked play. Not wicked, that is to say, unless all mad passion is wicked. 
certainly the lust in Salome smoulders and glows with a sort of under-furnace of concentration. But after all, it is the old universal obsession. Why is it more wicked to say, Suffer me to kiss thy mouth, Jokanan, than to say, Her lips suck forth my soul, see where it flies? Why is it more wicked to say, Thine eyes are like black holes burnt by torches in Tyrian tapestry, than to cry out, as Antony cries out, for the hot kisses of Egypt? Obviously, the madness of physical desire is a thing that can hardly be tempered down to the quiet stanzas of Gray's elegy. But it is not in itself a wicked thing, or the world would never have consecrated it in the great love legends. One may admit that the entrance of the Nubian executioner changes the situation, but, after all, the frenzy of the girl's request the terror of that head upon the silver charger, were implicit in her passion from the beginning, and are, God knows, never very far from passion of that kind. But all this is changed when we come to Edgar Allan Poe. Here we are no longer in Troy or Antioch or Canopus or Rimini. Here it is not any more a question of ungovernable passion carried to the limit of madness. Here it is no more the human to human tradition of each man killing the thing he loves. Here we are in a world where the human element in passion has altogether departed and left something else in its place, something which is really, in the true sense, inhumanly immoral. In the first place, it is a thing devoid of any physical emotion. It is sterile, immaterial, unearthly, ice-cold. In the second place, it is, in a ghastly sense, self-centred. It feeds upon itself. It subdues everything to itself. Finally, let it be said, it is a thing with a mania for corruption. The charnel house is its bridal couch. And the midnight stars whisper to one another of its perversion. There is no need for it to kill the thing it loves, for it loves only what is already dead. Vivette lingue. There must be no profane misinterpretation of this subtle and delicate difference. In analysing the evasive chemistry of a great poet's mood, one moves wearily, reverently, among a thousand betrayals. The mind of such a being is as the sandstrewn floor of a deep sea. In this sea we pour divers for pearls and strange things, must hold our breath long and long, and we watch the great glittering fish go sailing by, and touch the trailing rose-coloured weeds, and cross the buried coral. It may be that no one will believe us when we return about what we have seen, about those carcinets of rubies round drowned throats, and those opals that shimmered and gleamed in dead men's skulls, at any rate, the most superficial critic of Poe's poetry must admit that every single one of his great verses, except the little one to Helen, is preoccupied with death. Even in that Helen one, perhaps the loveliest though, I do not think the most characteristic of all the poet's desire, is to make the girl he celebrates a sort of classic odalisque, round whose palpable contours and lines 
he may hang the solemn ornaments of the dead of the dead to whom his soul turns even while embracing the living far far off from where the real helen waits so statue-like the agate lamp in her hands wavers the face of that other helen the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of ilium the longer poem under the same title and apparently addressed to the same sorceress is more entirely in his mood those shadowy moonlit petiers those living roses beardsley has planted them since in another enchanted garden and those eyes that grow so luminously so impossibly large until it is almost pain to be saved by them these things are in prose true manner for it is not helen that he has ever loved but her body her corpse her ghost her memory her sepulchre her look of dead reproach and these things none can take from him the maniacal egoism of a love of this kind its frozen inhumanity can be seen even in those poems which stretch yearning hands towards heaven in annabel lee for instance in that sea kingdom where the maiden lived who had no thought who must have no thought but to love and be loved by me what madness of implacable possession in that so all the night tide i lie down by the side of my darling my darling my life and my bride and her sepulchre by the sea and her tomb by the sounding sea the same remorseless laying on of hands upon what god himself cannot save from us may be discerned in that exquisite little poem which begins thou wast all to me love for which my soul did pine a green isle in the sea love a fountain and a shrine all wreathed with fairy fruits and flowers and all the flowers were mine and how well in poe's world do we know that dim gulf o'er which the spirit hangs mute motionless aghast for still in those days of his which are trances and in those nightly dreams which are all he lives for he is with her with her still with her always in what ethereal dances by what eternal streams the essence of immorality does not lie in mad byronic passion or in terrible herodian lust it lies in a certain deliberate petrification of the human soul in us a certain glacial detachment from all interests save one a certain frigid insanity of preoccupation with our own emotion and this emotion for the sake of which every earthly feeling turns to ice is our death hunger our eternal craving to make what has been be again and again forever the essence of immorality lies not in the hot flame of natural or even unnatural desire it lies in that inhuman and forbidden wish to arrest the process of life to lay a freezing hand a dead hand upon what we love so that it shall always be the same the really immoral thing is to isolate from among the affections and passions and attractions of this human world one particular lure and then having endowed this with the living body of eternal death to bend before it like the satyr before the dead nymph in aubrey's drawing and murmur 
and mutter and shudder over it through the eternal recurrence of all things is it any longer concealed from us wherein the immorality of this lies it lies in the fact that what we worship what we will not through eternity let go is not a living person but the body of a person a person who has so far been drugged as not only to die for us that is nothing but to remain dead for us through all the years in his own life with the lovely consumptive child bride dying by his side edgar allan poe lived as morally as rigidly as any monk the popular talk about his being a drug fiend is ridiculous nonsense he was a laborious artist chiselling and refining his artificial poems day in and day out where his immorality lies is much deeper it is in the mind the mind master shallow for he is nothing if not an absolute cerebralist certainly poe's verses are artificial they are the most artificial of all poems ever written and this is natural because they were the premeditated expression of a premeditated cult but to say they are artificial does not derogate from their genius would that there were more such artificial verses in the world one wonders if it is clearly understood how the unearthly element in poe differs from the unearthly element in shelley it differs from it precisely as death differs from life shelley's ethereal spiritualism though god knows such gross animals are we it seems inhuman enough as a passionate white flame it is the thin wavering fire-point of all our struggles after purity and eternity it is a centrifugal emotion not as was the others a centripetal one it is the noble platonic rising from the love of one's beautiful person to the love of many beautiful persons and from that onward through translunar gradations to the love of the supreme beauty itself shelley's spirituality is a living growing creative thing in its intrinsic nature it is not egoistic at all but profoundly altruistic it uses sex to leave sex behind in its higher level it is absolutely sexless it may transcend humanity but it springs from humanity it is in fact humanity's dream of its own transmutation for all its ethereality and remoteness it yearns like a god in pain over the sorrows of the world with infinite planetary pity it would heal those sorrows edgar allen's spirituality has not the least flicker of a longing to leave sex behind it is bound to sex as the insatiable ghoul is bound to the corpse he devours it is not concerned with the physical ecstasies of sex it has no interest in such human matters but deprive it of the fact of sex difference and it drifts away whimpering like a dead leaf an empty husk a wisp of chaff a skeleton gossamer the poor actual warm lips so sweetly forsworn may have had small interest for this spiritual lover but now that she is dead and buried and a ghost they must remain a woman's lips forever nor have edgar allen's faithful ones the remotest interest in what goes on around them 
occupied with their dead, their feeling towards common flesh and blood, is the feeling of Caligula. What have I done to thee? That proud, reserved face seems to say, as it looks out on us from its dusty title page. What have I done to thee, that I should despise thee so? Shelley's clear, erotic passion is always a cosmic thing. It is the rhythmic expression of the power that creates the world. But there is nothing cosmic about the enclosed gardens of Edgar Allan Poe, and the spirits that walk among those moon-dials and dim parterres are not of the kind who go streaming up from land and ocean, shouting with joy that Prometheus has conquered. But what a master he is, what a master! In the suggestiveness of names, to mention only one thing, can anyone touch him? That word perforogene, the name of the ruler of God knows what kingdom of the dead, does it not linger about one and follow one like the smell of incense? But the poem of all poems in which the very genius of Edgar Allan is embodied is, of course, Ulalume. Like this, there is nothing in literature, nothing in the whole field of human art. Here he is from beginning to end, a supreme artist, dealing with the subject for which he was born, that undertone of sardonic, cynical humour, for it can be called nothing else, which grins at us in the background like the grin of a skull. How extraordinary characteristic it is, and the touches of infernal colloquialism so deliberately fitted in and making us remember many things. Is there anything in the world like them? And now as the night was senescent, and the star-dials hinted of morn, and the end of our path a liquescent and nebulous lustre was born, out of which a miraculous crescent arose with a duplicate horn, Astarte's bediamond crescent, distinct with its duplicate horn, and I said, but let us pass to his companion. The cruelty of this conversation with Psyche is a thing that may well make us shudder. The implication is, of course, double. Psyche is his own soul, the soul in him which would live and grow and change and know the vita nova. She is also the companion to which he has turned for consolation. She is the second one, the other one, and whose living caresses he would forget, if it might be, that which lies down there in the darkness. Then Psyche, uplifting her finger, said sadly, The star I mistrust, its pallor I strangely mistrust. O oh, hasten, O oh, let us not linger, O oh, fly, let us fly, for we must. Then the companion, thus the comrade, thus the vita nova. Now mark what follows. Then I pacified Psyche and kissed her and tempted her out of her gloom and conquered her scruples and gloom and we passed the end of a vista but were stopped by the door of a tomb by the door of a legended tomb and I said what is written sweet sister on the door of this legended tomb she replied Ulalume, Ulalume, tis the vault of thy lost Ulalume the end of the poem is like the beginning, and who can utter the feelings it excites, that dark turn of Orba, those ghoul-haunted woodlands of Weir, convey more thrillingly than a thousand words of description 
what we have actually felt long ago far off it that strange country of our forbidden dreams what a master he is and if you ask about his philosophy of life let the conqueror worm make answer lo tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years is not that an arresting commencement the word gala night has it not the very malice of the truth of things like hain it gives this poet pleasure not only to love the dead but to love feeling himself dead that strange poem about annie with its sickening sentimental conclusion where the poet lies prostrate drugged with all the drowsy syrups in the world and celebrates his euthanasia has a quality of its own it is the inverse of life's dance macabre it is the way we poor dancers long to sleep for to sleep you must slumber in just such a bed the old madness is over now the old thirst quenched it was quenched in a water that does not flow so far underground and luxuriously peacefully we can rest at last with the odour of puritan pansies about us and somewhere not far off rosemary and rue edgar allan poe's philosophy of life it may be summed up in the lines from that little poem where he leaves her side who has for a moment turned his head from the tomb the reader will remember the way it begins take this kiss upon thy brow and the conclusion is the confusion of the whole matter all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream strangely in forlorn silence passes before us as we close his pages the procession of dead cold maids legere follows ulalume lenore follows legere and after them eulalie and annabelle and the moaning of the sea tides that wash their feet is the moaning of eternity i suppose it needs a certain kindred perversion in the reader to know the shudder of the loss more dear than life of such as these the more normal memory of man will still continue repeating the liturgical syllables of a very different requiem o daughters of dreams and of stories that life is not wearied of yet faustian fragolette dolores felice yolande and gillette yes life and the life lovers enamoured still of these exquisite witches these philtre bearers these sirens these children of circa but a few among us those who understand the poetry of edgar allen turn away from them to that rarer colder more virginal figure to her who has been born and has died so many times to her who was Ligier, and Ulalume, and Helen, and Lenore. For are not all these one, to her we have loved in vain, and shall love in vain until the end, to her who wears, even in the triumph of her immortality, the close-clinging, heavily-scented cerements of the dead? The old bards shall cease, and their memory that lingers of frail brides and faithless shall be shriveled as with fire, for they loved us not nor knew us and our lips would dumb our fingers could wake not the secret of the lyre 
ourselves o god the singer i had sung amid their rages the long tale of man and his deeds for good and ill but the old world knoweth tis the speech of all his ages man's wrong and ours he knoweth and is still end of chapter sixteen